Now, we've been talking again the last weeks about this pathway of discipleship. God invites us to life, to live that life out here and now, not just later on when we die. And I thought, what would be a great way to kind of follow that little series up? Well, why don't we do an extended conversation looking at real lives that actually lived out the pathway of God? And that's what we're going to do. We're going to, we're going to enter into an epic story that God has told, and it is actual lives following God into God's adventure and his pathway from being locked in and being stolen, life stolen from him, to life flourishing. And so we find that in the book of Exodus. If you have your Bibles or your devices, we're going to start by reading the text. Exodus chapter 1. Again, this comes on the heels of Genesis, the story of uh, Jacob, whose name's changed to Israel, and he has sons um, that become tribal leaders. They end up in Egypt. Joseph is a significant leader. He didn't start out that way. goes from prison to leadership, and we pick up the story a generation later. Exodus chapter 1, verse 6. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, who did not know Joseph, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names are Shipra and Pua, when you're helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on a delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king said. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? And the midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They're vigorous and give birth (laughs) before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives. And the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them households of their own. And Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born you must throw into the Nile. But let every girl live. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I remember the day some years ago now that I sat down to read this children's classic book to my children. I confess I had not read it as a child myself, and so we opened this book up and we began reading it. And little did I know that as I read that story then, it would become a symbol for where I believe the world is today. Let me read opening sentences of this classic child story. Alice was getting very tired of sitting by her sister on the bank. 
And having nothing to do, once or twice she had peeped into the book her sister was reading. But it had no pictures or conversations in it. And what is the use of a book, thought Alice, without pictures or conversations? And after that, after that Alice noticed an oddly well-dressed rabbit run by. And Alice started to her feet, for it flashed across her mind that she had never before seen a rabbit with either a waistcoat pocket or a watch to take out of it. And burning with curiosity, she ran across the field after it and was just in time to see it pop down a large rabbit hole under the hedge. In another moment, down went Alice after it, never once considering how in the world she was to get out again. So begins the classic child story, Alice in Wonderland. And I think about that moment, and it feels to me like where we are in the world today in a lot of ways. She's sitting by the riverbank, almost wanting and longing to be drawn into some kind of a story. She's just sitting there. And I feel like there's a sense in which the world is like that, especially in this country right now. I mean, we literally lived through a time where the entire world stopped. And of course, we've restarted and we've re-engaged our routines. But I can't help wondering if there's still a part of us that's sitting by the riverbank watching the real things and the real purposeful things in the world go by. I wonder if we've re-engaged our routines, but I don't know if we've re-engaged our passions and our giftedness. So we find ourselves sitting like Alice on the side of the riverbank and wondering, is there something to dive into? She dives into this rabbit hole. Why? Because she's longing for some story. I think the metaphor in her story of the book that her sister's reading. I, I want something with images. I want something with real conversations. I want to do something that matters in this world. So without even knowing where it led, she dives into the rabbit hole and her life has changed. And I get the sense that inside a lot of human hearts today, oh, we're doing our routines and we're having our fun, but there's something inside of us that says, is there really a story out there? Is there an adventure to be lived, bizarrely odd and authentic story with real images and real conversations? And you know the Jewish people, and I believe the Holy Spirit says the answer to that question is absolutely yes. There is a story out there like that with incredible images, with the edge of your seat conversations between powers of heaven and earth and a story and an adventure to be lived out in such a way that your life will never be the same if you dive into that. In fact, this is such a gripping story that it has been told and retold and even reenacted nonstop for over 3,000 years. We know it in the Bible is the story of the Exodus. And there is this epic telling of the story. In fact, scholars call the Exodus story paradigmatic. What a fancy word for saying. This is really important. Listen to this. Exodus is the kind of story in Scripture that just like the resurrection, Exodus didn't just happen, it happens. The Exodus story isn't just something that happened back then. The story and the characters and the themes and the situations and the battles and the struggles and the invitation are things that keep happening in your life and in mine, in our world today. It didn't just happen then. It happens now. And we won't cover every text by any 
stretch of the imagination, but over the course of the next several weeks, I want to do an overview of this story, not just to think about things intellectually, but as an invitation to do what Alice did and dive into the story in such a way that when we come out of it, we will be different. God says, are you willing to step into the adventure of God in such a way you might not know exactly where it leads, but you will be changed by it? So here's the thing, as we get into the story, one of the things that you'll notice right off the bat is what I would say, a warning. Beware, because someone or something will try to block your way into the story and the adventure of God. Someone or something will try to keep you, pull you, push you away from God's intent for your life. And it will happen again and again and again. Sometimes those forces arise from within, sometimes from without. But one way or another, there are forces, voices, influences, alternative stories that want to pull you away. Here's a way to think about this. As the story is introduced, you get introduced to two characters and what's important to understand here in the telling of the exodus story it's just like the best stories that we have as well in history or in movies or whatever the case may be sometimes a character in the story is both historical and symbolic follow me on this sometimes the characters are both historical it's a real story and those characters become symbolic of the retelling of the story here's a way to think about it in our country when I say the names Jackie Robinson and Adolf Hitler, those are both historical characters, but they're also become iconic symbols of what they represent. Does that make sense? So when I say Jackie Robinson, I'm recognizing someone who, yes, was a historical man who lived a life, he broke the color barrier in professional sports, but Robinson's name now is also symbolic of anyone that is going to try to step up with courage and purpose and fight against the forces that would tear us down. It's a symbolic character too. Does that make sense? Of course, Hitler is the same way. He is the embodiment, not just of that historical character in the 20th century, but anyone, and we see people on the stage of the world today who are living out that kind of iconic, oppress other people for the sake of yourself kind of person. Does that make sense? So when we come to the characters of Joseph and Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 1, you are meeting both historical characters and symbolic ones. And this is something we'll come back to again and again, but it's really important. What does Joseph represent? Yes, he was a particular person, one of the patriarchs that God blesses and the promise line comes through, but he also represents something. He represents creation's intention, what God intended in his epic story for the world. Here's a way to think about that. In the book of Exodus, it actually starts with a word that most English translations don't include. It starts with the word and. Isn't that odd? It says and. These are the names of those who came, the sons of Jacob who came. What is God saying? You cannot read Exodus without having an intimate connection with Genesis first. It's like you're telling a story and so-and-so went here and he went here and then they went there and then we went there, period. And next, well, you're holding it on in the middle of a story. What does Genesis tell us? Many things. But what is particularly important for this story and what Joseph represents is God's creative intent, the way I like to put it, again, borrowing off a guy named Andy Crouch who says this beautifully in a book called Playing God. God's creative intent was for flourishing life, flourishing life, for life to grow and flourish. And that's what he said in Genesis 1, be fruitful, multiply, grow. And what you see here in this story is Joseph 
coming in the line of the people of God, trying to live out God's creative intent. He represents God's creation's intent that the world is blessed. What does Pharaoh represent? Yes, he's a historical character, but he represents those stories, those forces that will try to oppose God's flourishing of life. He's shutting it down. He's cutting it off. Now, here's a way to think about this. Remember, this is so important. Exodus didn't just happen. It happens. So it'll happen in your world, and if you're not careful, it'll happen in your heart and your life, too. So part of what the Bible does for us in the opening story, it tells us what it looks like when you're being lied to. It tells us what the false story looks like in Exodus chapter 1. So watch Pharaoh, not just as a historical character, but the symbol any time that oppression and shutting off the adventure of God comes, because it'll happen in your life too. So here's two things to watch for. The first thing is watch for, I call adventures thief, Pharaoh, he's adventures thief. Watch for his mindset. Watch for his mindset. How does it describe Pharaoh? The only description that you get of Pharaoh other than his activity and that'll be up in a moment, the only description you get of him is that he is the man, the king that rose, who did not, what? Know Joseph. Now remember, Joseph is not just a historical character. He represents something. He did not know Joseph. Know is one of the most important words in the Exodus story, really in the whole Bible, but this is why it's important to recognize this. We've talked about this many times before. Let me say it again. Whenever you come across the word know in the Bible, do not think of know the way that we do in an academic town. We think about all the stuff that you've got to know and throw up on a test. Facts, knowledge, data. Is that part of it? Sure, but it is much deeper than that. The Hebrew concept of the word know is experiential and relational. Hear that again. This is so important. The Hebrew sense and the biblical sense throughout the Bible, when it says God wants you to know something, it is experiential and relational. Example of this, I believe the first time that we encounter this word in all of the Bible comes in the beginning of Genesis when it says Adam knew his wife Eve and they had a child. That is not facts or data. That is relational intimacy. So when it says he did not know Joseph, he didn't experientially or relationally know Joseph or the purpose of God behind his people. And this is incredibly important. And if you listen, very practical for our lives. I love the way a teacher of mine put it. For those that enjoy math or are having to suffer through it, I'm going to give you a very simple, easy equation that my teacher gave me. If you put that up there. He said to know, and this is the biblical sense of this word, to know is to care. And to care is to act. If you get this, this is enormous implications for our lives and for the story. To know is to care, and to care is to act. In other words, if we really want to have meaningful change in our lives, you don't start with the behavior, you start with the relational and experiential knowledge of whatever it is that you want to act about. Or another way to say this, because you see this in the story, the one who ends up oppressing the people of God and the children of Israel and Jacob, he didn't know them. He didn't care about them and his actions followed. So let me say this principle because it'll change your life if you get it. If you think about the conflict in your life, think about the conflict, hatred, where does conflict, hatred, division, suffering, oppression, where does it all come from? 99% of the time it comes from relational ignorance. If you look in your life for where you are having conflict and struggle and fights and division, it will ultimately come because you no longer relationally know the person you are in conflict with. It is incredibly practical. 
every now and then, I'll have an argument with my wife. We've been married 30 years. So every now and then, we'll have a little fight. (laughs) Most of the time, I'm in the wrong. (laughs) But here's what I've learned. 90% of the time when we're missing each other in that way is because I have not taken the moment to know what it is she's talking about and know the heart that she's bringing to the table. If we get there, we may not agree, but we will come together. Division comes from relational ignorance, and it's true from every place in your life. Look for it. When you see conflict, see if there's not relational ignorance behind it. That's where racial hatred comes from. That's where oppression of the poor comes from. That's where religious division comes from. We talked in our Wednesday, Wednesday class last week about this. A great quote from a guy in our history. I love my heritage. I say that all the time. I love my heritage. In what We are part of what is known as the Stone Campbell Restoration Movement. I love that movement. I love especially the heart of that movement was a movement of unity. Now we confess within that movement that the great irony of a unity movement is that we have fragmented into three large divisions and a lot of smaller ones. Can we just own that? Love my heritage, and we got to own that part. And here's one of the things I shared on Wednesday I'll share with you. I, I realized when I was studying uh, the history of our movement in Churches of Christ and the larger Restoration Heritage, division happened ultimately because we didn't know each other anymore. Did you know in the first generation of that movement, all these different things that became disciples of Christ and Christian churches and all that, we were all together. We might have worshipped differently on Sunday mornings, but we were part of one movement. Do you know what happened in the second generation? They divided because leaders, what? Did not know each other anymore. And then they became power struggles. My favorite quote, we've got some great names in Restoration history, by the way, too. My favorite characters, Raccoon John Smith, we'll tell his story later. That's awesome. But my favorite one, Moses Lard. How about that for a guy's name? You better be smart if your name is Lard. Moses Lard is part of our heritage. And he said one of the most brilliant things. Here's a quote. He said, division is the final work of strangers. Please take that in. Division is the ultimate final work of strangers. If you do not stay in relational connection with someone who is in your life, you will ultimately divide from them. And it happens in places like this and in church communities and in your workplace and in your family. This Pharaoh did not know the people of God and he ended up brutalizing them and oppressing them as a result. Do you know there's good news, by the way? Because this equation works in reverse as well. It works the other way as well. What if I want to live differently with respect to someone that I am disconnected from. Do you start with behavior? No. Start with knowing them relationally and see what happens. Fifteen years ago, I was reminded of this by a friend of mine. Fifteen years ago, me and a friend of mine named John and some others were in a spiritual community and we were challenged by a lady who did work with homeless people. Simple challenge. I love when simple challenges are life transformative. She said, here's my challenge to you. Just get to know the name of one homeless person. Get to know the name of one homeless person. Now, in our area, we were living in Nashville at the time. There was a lot here, maybe not quite as many. And so maybe you expand it to anything in the Matthew 25 list. If you're new to the Bible, go read Matthew 25. And you'll see Jesus has a heart for the least and the lost, he calls them, or the folks that are ignored. And he talks about prisoners. He talks about the poor. He talks about the homeless. He talks about people that don't have enough to eat and enough to wear. Here's the challenge. Get to know the name of one person in that category and see what happens. Fifteen years ago... My friend John took that challenge seriously. He went to work the next day. He's going to McDonald's. Outside the front of McDonald's is a guy, we'll call him Tom, and Tom is a homeless man. 
He heard the challenge in his mind. He said, Tom, why don't you come in? Let's just have breakfast. We had breakfast. He had breakfast with him, learned his story. One of the things he found is Tom didn't want to be in poverty. One of the major impediments that was keeping him locked in the cycle of poverty, can you imagine this, was his teeth. What we take for granted, going to a dentist and all that, he didn't have. He said, do you know how hard it is to go and apply for a job and you're missing half of your teeth? Well, lo and behold, by coincidence of God, yes, my friend John, after that conversation, ran into a new member of our church named Graham. Guess what he did for a living? He was opening a new dentist office. And John had a conversation with him and said, hey, I got this idea. What do you think about us pulling our stuff together? And you can do it at cost, and I'll pay for it, and let's, let's outfit this guy. And over the course of the next several months, he got a whole new set of teeth, and he got a whole new life as a result. Now, my friend John told me this, by the way. He said, people ask me now, listen to this, 15 years later why I drive an hour to go to see my friend Graham to, uh, as, as my dentist. It's because he learned the name of one homeless man, changed that guy's life, changed his life, and he's got a friend for life. Isn't that amazing? God says, pay attention to the mindset of the story you're being offered and if that mindset is one of relational ignorance, run. Because the no is the care and the care is the act. And I don't want to be living out a false story that says I don't know you, care about you, and you are unimportant. Second thing you notice about adventure's thief is his activity. Here's a way to think about it. If you were listening to the story, what sounds would you hear? What activity is going on? And, and if you were going to Right as a screenplay, what would you put in as the sounds? The first sounds that I hear are the sounds of slavery. I hear shackles and chains. I hear whips. I hear the pounding of tools on rocks. I hear the cries of the oppressed. Do you hear that? There's one other sound if you pay close attention to the story. It's the sound that dominates the entire story, and this is so important for our lives too. You know what sound you hear more than anything else in Exodus chapter 1? The voice of one guy. Who is it that you hear in Exodus chapter 1? You hear the voice of the oppressor, Pharaoh. He is bloviating and yelling and commanding from beginning to end. It's almost the only voice you hear. And I don't know about you, but I think it's important to recognize that that's true about life. By the way, quick note here, because this is what I do all the time. My major theme, if I'm talking to anybody in any influence, especially if you are a leader with a title, but here's what's true, is all of us have influence in our life. If you are in any position of influence, if you have a title in any sphere of your life, and you are the only one talking, you are not leading. I say that again. If you are in any significance in your life, any influence, you're a parent, you're a work leader, you're a team leader, you're a title position in a nonprofit or church, whatever the case may be, if you're the only one talking, you are not leading. And you are probably hurting people. I'm convinced of the first one. I'm certain of the first one. The second one is often the case. The only one talking is Pharaoh, the anti-opposition to the life and the flourishing life of God. And he's the only one talking from beginning to end. By the way, does that feel familiar? Have you ever had seasons of your life where you are just listening and waiting and looking and the only voice you hear is the voice of hopelessness or despair or oppression or something else? Because the hardest part of the story, did you notice? The hardest part of the story is who's not talking. Who did you not hear the entire text of 
Exodus chapter 1. Whose voice did you not hear? By the way, we can talk here. Does anybody know? Huh? Whose voice did we not hear from beginning to end? Who do we want to hear more than anybody else to do something about this? God. He does not speak the entire story. In fact, God is not even mentioned until verse 17. Have you ever lived a season of your life like that? All you hear are the voices of the oppressive powers around you, the hurting powers around you, the hopeless ones around you, the people telling you this is the way and go this way to have real happiness and enjoyment. And you hear every story and every voice but God. If you have ever been in a season like that in your life, welcome home. This is your story. Because that's where they started too. And the question that the text begs us to ask is, God, where are you? Are you there at all? We certainly don't hear your voice. We don't see your face. But are you there at all? And we end with two looks of hints that I think invite us deeper into the epic story and adventure of God. The first thing is pay attention to the names in the story. Pay attention to the names. I've said this before, but often the way the Bible tells a story is every bit as important as what the Bible says. And one of the major ways that Exodus 1 tells its story, if anybody's in a literature class, you will hear about irony. Irony is thick in this story. Here's the way I want to think about it, because I've got to picture it first. He's talking and running his mouth the whole time, but everything he says has an ironic background to it. Here's, here's the way I think about it. There's an old show. I think they restarted it again called Whose Line Is It Anyway? Has anybody seen this? It's an improv show. So they just throw them up into scenarios and they've got to make up stuff on the, on the fly. My favorite bit that they do is called Newsflash. And they put Collins, one of the funniest guys up there, and he, he is standing in front of a green screen, which means he has no idea the images that are going on behind him. And he has to do a newscast. So he's just making stuff up. And they'll feed him questions to kind of lead him to talk. Here's the thing. Listen to this because it's so important. The more he talks, the more absurd he looks. The more he talks, the more absurd he looks. So you'll see behind him, like there's people like, you know, wrecking on, uh, you know, cross country. I'm not cross country. Ski jumping. And there's a uh, roller coaster over here. I love it. The kid gets really sad because the dog eats his uh, ice cream cone. And so you can imagine the kind of things they're making him say. And he's just talking to talking, and the audience is laughing more and more, and he has no idea the scene that's going on behind him. That's Exodus chapter 1. Just a couple examples. It's so rich in the story. We don't have time for all this. The first thing the bloviating Pharaoh says is, let us deal shrewdly with these Hebrews. Let's be wise in the way we deal with them, because they're so numerous, and they're going to cause a problem. They might join our enemies later on. And his major issue is he has a slave workforce that's building his cities for him. Now, follow me on this. This It's really important. Who's building the cities? Who Who are the slave force that's building the cities? Back in that day, who did the building work? There were other people did a different kind of work. Who did the building work? The men. You got me? So you ready for a shrewd idea? In order to preserve our workforce, let's kill all the men. Let's kill all the boys. That's brilliant, Pharaoh. And monkeys are dancing behind his head as he's saying. You get it? It's the irony of it. But the best irony, there's a bunch of them going on. The most powerful irony, by the way, just, just a hint to this later in the next chapter, his own daughter undermines him and brings into the story and preserves the life of the guy that's going to take him out. I mean, that's just awesome. But even before that, Again, remember the names. Pay attention to the names. Here's a quick thing, and you can answer this for me if you can. 
What is the name of the Egyptian king Pharaoh? Yeah, you let me do a little dialogue here. Some of you, what is the name of the Egyptian king Pharaoh? You just read chapter one, has all the information we have. What's the name of the Egyptian king? Pharaoh's his title, not his name. What is his name? It's a trick question. What's his name? Did you catch it? The way the Bible tells the story is really important. He is not named. The most powerful man on the planet is not named. By the way, did you know this? Even today, we don't know who this is. This is so, God is so brilliant. Even today, we have no idea who this is. Oh, people will debate about it. It might be Ramses II or whatever. If anybody definitively tells you, probably not true. The best scholars in the world, rabbis in the world, we don't know. And that's exactly the way God wanted it. Have no idea who the guy is. I mean, the king is. By the way, do you happen to know the name of two random Hebrew slave women? Anybody know their names? Shipra and Pua. We know their names. What does God say? It's brilliant. It's brilliant. God, even though when you don't see him, even though all you hear are the Putins of the world screaming their heads off, all you hear are the anti-God narratives of the world, quietly and slowly, God is preserving a name for himself through the small faithfulness of his seemingly insignificant people. All Pharaoh gets is a title. Even that is full of irony. And there's an ice cream cone behind his head. Because you know what a Pharaoh means? It means great household. Where is his household now? You go to Egypt and you don't find an empire. You go visit this stuff and what do you find? Ruins. But guess what? You know where the story ends? It's so rich. The story ends with these two midwives who spent their life giving birth to other people's families. It said because of their faithfulness, God gave them households of their own. Who ends with a name and a household? Two insignificant women. Don't ever forget this. Sometimes all you'll hear is the loud voices of oppression and anti-godness, but the quiet influence of God among the faithfulness of insignificant people will turn it around. Look for it. And then lastly, lastly, watch for the numbers in the story. I told you before, one of the most powerful things to unlock or just to hear what God is saying in Scripture is the repetition. Repetition in the Bible is like italics, bold, and underlined because they didn't read the story first. They heard it. Repetition is important. What do you hear repeated in the story from beginning to end? It is the most significant thing the narrator keeps putting out there. In verse 7, in verse 9, in verse 12, and in verse 20, what do you hear again and again and again and again? Israel is pumping out babies. In fact, the word that is used often uh, for the mathematicians in the room, you love it. They were not subtracting. They were not dividing. They were not adding. They were multiplying. And don't forget that word. They were multiplying. They were multiplying. My favorite one is in verse 12. It says, the more they oppressed them and tried to wipe them out, the more they multiplied. And at the end of the story, they multiplied, multiplied and became even more numerous. Why does that matter? It's not just a demographic report. Why does that matter? The way one teacher taught me, he said, keep your finger on the promise line of God. Why does it matter? We preached in the summer on Genesis chapter 12 and look at Genesis chapter 15. God said way back in the day, 400 years before this moment, he said, Abraham, count the stars if you can. Because I am making a promise, God says, on my life 
that you will have multiple descendants that will bless the world. And what is happening when everything looks like it's going downhill and every voice of oppression is the only one you hear? God is quietly fulfilling God's 400-year-old promise. By the way, it goes even further back than that. Maybe if you heard that great math word, maybe you've heard it before. Remember the book of Exodus starts with the word and. What was the job description of the entire human race? Someday we'll just look at this completely, but just a glance at it. He said, Adam, Eve, go into the garden, be fruitful and multiply. And they're doing it. They are living out God's creative intent even in the face of every opposition to it. Hear me, God will always fulfill his purpose and his promise in your life. Sometimes he does it quietly. So the question we ask is, what do we do with our small, insignificant slave positions in a cosmic world that feels like it's against God? What do we do then? What if we just simply look for those places in our lives where the purpose and promise of God is quietly coming out and we join him in that place? What if we did that? I saw this lived out years ago and I see even now how God invited one person to dive into the rabbit hole of his adventure and he keeps playing it out. Back in 2010, you guys, if you were around, saw this on the television. We lived it. In Nashville, Tennessee, there was a huge flood. I mean, within hours, everything was upside down. Did you know $2 billion of private property was lost in that flood, and 21 people died? It's absolutely overwhelming. One of the parts of the story that often didn't get told, though, is in addition to all of this, this is downtown Nashville and the music industry, and everybody talked about all that. What often got ignored was the homeless because they lost their homes too. And one of the things that God had done, talk about joining God and his work in the larger church, I'm not talking about even one denomination, the larger church of Nashville at that time had really got engaged with the homeless. And we had people that went down there and other folks that went down there. And especially, uh, once, one thing you learn as you get uh, deeper into working with the homeless, there are different kinds of homeless. It's not just one category. And there's often a group of folks that end up in some version or another of what are called tent cities. And these are the kind of homeless that, that don't go into public housing and all that for one reason or another. Sometimes it's mental health. Sometimes they're married and there are restrictions. Sometimes they have animals that are their, like family members and they're not allowed to go in these places. And so they need a little bit more freedom in a place like that they call Tent City. And so they're living in tents, but it's their home. And we had been down there. there was, tent City was right on the other side, literally, of the tracks in downtown Nashville. And can you guess what happened when the flood hit? Everything they owned was gone. And I just learned as I kind of re-research about this story, it was a Church of Christ member, the Otter Creek Church of Christ, who owned a piece of land. And he said, I've got a bunch of land in the back of where I do a car lot, and, and you can come down here because we know they're, they're getting a long-term solution, but in the short term, they needed a place to live. And so he said, you can come and stay here. Guess what the folks in the community did? They met and complained and got them kicked out. Look, we all do stupid things and things we regret and say things we regret. So I'm not going to pick on this, but we've got to just call it out when the voice is wrong. A pastor, a member, a, sorry, a preacher of a church in that city got up and said, and I quote, the gates of charity are closed in Antioch, Tennessee. 
It was one of those moments, I shared this with the elders the other day, it was one of those moments when um, I thought, my daughter was about seven years old, I'm not going to shield her from the world, she loves, has a heart for the homeless, I'm going to tell her about it and tell her that the world doesn't always look the way we want it to be, and people in power don't always do the right thing. And we talked about that night, and she cried, why do they do that, Daddy? And she prayed over him, and I thought that was the end of it. And I got up the next morning, you know what she did? I walked downstairs, and I saw my daughter on the floor with a big poster board, she had markers and she was drawing and coloring on it. And on the top of that poster board, three words, cents for tents. She made a poster and she carried it into school to raise money to buy tents and sleeping bags for the people who lost their home. Seven-year-old girl in an elementary school God used to raise over $700 to buy tents and sleeping bags for those who were displaced. One person who just gets a hint of what God is up to in the world saying, I'm just going to do it. Yeah, she got a music degree and she's phenomenal at that. And right now she's serving in a campus ministry because she wants to serve in God's ongoing adventure. What started when she was seven is still going on when she's 23. What might happen to us if we decide to get off the riverbank and say, all right, God, what are you doing? What are you fulfilling? What promise are you carrying out in my world and place? And what little thing do I have? Some markers and a poster board that I might throw into it as I dive into that rabbit hole with you and watch how I am changed, how a church is changed by it. Father God, that is our prayer. We thank you so much that you continue to tell the story of liberation and freedom and calling people to come and actually know relationally and experientially your heart. That's why you tell this story, not just to accomplish things, but to know you. Father God, invite us into that journey so that we know you and that other people might join in with us and we all will be changed all over again by the epic story that you tell in that and ultimately in the person of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.